We've been in a series, Prophetic Pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. And if you remember last Sunday, Pastor Matt talked about these images like shadows of the real thing. Shadows that images or people or examples or symbols that are present in the Old Testament that point to something greater, something bigger. And we want to carry that on today. I was trying to think of how I can start, and I thought I'd, can I be a coach this morning for just a few minutes? I want to be a coach. Can I be a coach? I really enjoyed playing racket sports when I was young. Uh, I remember in Edmonton back in the days, I played a lot of tennis. And uh, Ray, this friend of mine, and I would play hours and hours of tennis in his neighborhood Sunday afternoons. And we never made it anything great, but we just really enjoyed. And I thought I had been somewhat accomplished as a tennis player. I remember after I got married, many years later, uh, my in-laws lived in Vernon, and we would go to Vernon uh, to visit our in-laws, and I met someone there who said, hey, let's go play some tennis. And so we met on a tennis court, and that guy absolutely dummied me. I was racing around the court like a chicken with its head cut off. And he was just calm and cool in the center of the court, and he was just doing his thing, and I was going back and forth and back and forth, and I was just so exasperated and frustrated. Since then, I've played uh, racquetball, played a little bit of ping pong. Um, pickleball, we know, is a big sport right now, so we're enjoying pickleball as well. And when I first moved here to Manitoba, I mean here to BC, Matt and I used to play racquetball quite a bit when they had the racquetball courts in the YMCA. And as you can imagine, the same predicament. Matt would just stand in the center of the court and he would just hit the ball. And here's me, just all over the place. Because my focus in the racket sports was on the crazy ball, it was on my racket, I need to make that right shot. You know, in tennis, you want to have that really nice underslice. You know, so you're focused on that. Or you want to place the ball on the floor, so I'm focused on the ball, or I'm focused on my racket, and I'm running around realizing there's got to be a different strategy. So Coach Dave puts his hat on. Actually, I go to Google, because Google answers everything, right? This is what we're told, and, and I know this is true from experience, and I know this is true even in all the years I've watched my son in hockey. Um, it's not about the racket. It's not about the ball. It's about your feet. It's all about your footwork. Footwork is the key to success in sports. Pay attention to your feet, to how you place them, to how you move them. See, so often we're focused on this ball, this thing that's coming towards us, or how I can respond to it, how I can defeat the opponent on the other side. And they say, very simple, you need to focus on your footwork. Pay attention to your feet. See, wise coaching dictates our connection to the ground enables us to push off something and accelerate from the lower body. If players neglect this fundamental principle, the result will be either coming off balance or too much unnecessary movement. And if you watch me play tennis or racquetball, that's exactly what you see. Footwork is the key. Footwork is the key because it maintains your balance. 
It minimizes unnecessary movement and it saves you from exhaustion. Your footwork helps you recover from the previous shot and prepares you for the next one. Instead of taking a lot of tiny steps and moving all the place, when you focus on your footwork, you can take larger, longer steps, more intentional. Pay attention to your feet. Your strength, your stability, and your agility comes from the ground up. Indeed, your entire orientation for the game comes from your footing. I thought, wow, that is just it's revolutionary in a lot of sense. Pay attention to your footing. It's all about your footing. A firm position of the feet, supportive place to put your feet, a place or position providing a base of operation, a secure, established position. Today, I want to challenge you to think about your footing. It's all about your footing. It's all about where and how you place your feet. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is? All other ground is? Are you sure you believe that? We love that hymn. I love that hymn. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. We know this up here, but how many times in the course of our days, our weeks, as we're engaged in projects and in relationships, as we're parenting, as we're grandparenting, there are so many other footings that we end up standing on might feel secure, but we often can forget inadvertently that it is on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Today I want to talk about the image of the stone. The image of the stone and how it started in the Old Testament and how that prefigures Christ, how it shows us that Christ is that solid rock. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, verse 24, I want to anchor from there, and then from there I want to talk about how this stone, this rock, becomes that solid ground which we can place our feet. Genesis 49, verse 24, but his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber because the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Now this does not make a lot of sense unless we understand the backstory of everything that's going on here. Genesis 49 is Jacob's oracle to his sons, his 12 sons. So if you remember, Jacob is the father who is renamed Israel, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jacob is at the end of his life, and when he penned this, when he gave this oracle to his sons, he was not in his homeland in Canaan, he was actually in Egypt. And he's at the end of his life, pulls his 12 boys together, and he gives them their blessings. Now if you read through this, he gives a much greater blessing a more expanded blessing to Joseph. That is significant. 
So if you rewind all the way back to Genesis chapter 32 and on, Genesis 32 to the end of Genesis 50 is Joseph's story. And there's an interesting little line in back in Genesis chapter 32 where Joseph is actually daddy's favorite. That's kind of interesting because that does shape a little bit. But I thought for us to understand Jacob's blessing and how Jacob talks about uh, the stone of Israel, let us take a very quick walk through Joseph's life. We love Joseph. I love Joseph. A lot of great stories come out of Joseph's life. And I showed this, uh, how about, I don't know, five or six years ago I showed this graph, so some of you might recognize it. I refer to it quite a bit because I enjoy Joseph's. But if you remember Joseph, so let me just very quickly walk through. I'm assuming most of us know big portions of Joseph's life. So we have Joseph's birth, and Joseph is that dreamer. Remember that when he was young? Remember all those dreams? Can you imagine um, as, as his older brother's? You know, sitting around the dinner table, and Joseph at that point was the youngest. Benjamin hadn't been born yet. He'd go, hey boys, guess what? It's all about me. You guys? Yeah, you're going to bow down to me. Repeatedly, right? And you think of the age gap between Joseph and the oldest. It'd be quite a few years. And the oldest going, what is this little twig thinking he's doing Tell me that one day I'm going to bow down to him, right? Joseph was a dreamer. Then on top of that, the coat of many colors. How's that for just telling all the rest of the boys, hey, guess what? This guy, Joseph, he's my favorite. Well, we know what happens. Older brothers get jealous. Joseph goes out to visit the older brothers when they're out in the field, and their jealousy takes over, and they throw him in the pit. And then to make things even worse, because the intention was to have him eliminated. Someone says, well, instead of actually eliminating him, let's just get rid of him. And so they sell Joseph. So how's that for a dreamer, Joseph? So Joseph is sold. He ends up in Egypt under Potiphar. And it's interesting, at this point, this simple little line, Genesis 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. Hmm. Not bad. So my life didn't quite go where I was. By the way, we figure that at this point, Joseph was somewhere around 17 years old when he was sold to Potiphar, when he entered Potiphar's household and became a slave under Potiphar, about 17 years old. So at 17, you're going, the Lord's with me. The Lord's going to prosper, right? It's going to be all uphill from here, right? It's going to go good. And we learn that Potiphar entrusts Joseph. In fact, Joseph is taking care of the entire household, and things go really good, except for he was falsely accused. Potiphar obviously has to believe the accuser over Joseph. Joseph is again back in jail. Not going so well right now. Joseph meets the warden, and the warden entrusts him with everything. And so for a second time, Joseph is entrusted with all kinds of stuff. And while he's in jail... Two more guys come into jail who are under Pharaoh, servants of Pharaoh. They have dreams, and Joseph is able to interpret their dreams. And Joseph says, one of you will be freed from prison, and you'll go back to your service, and life will go good with you. The other one of you, hmm, not so much. But you who's going to go back to Pharaoh, 
please don't forget about me. Remember me. I'm sitting here in jail. I'm innocent. And what happens? He's forgotten. Well, somebody else has dreams in the land. Pharaoh has dreams in the land. And finally, the one who is back in Pharaoh's service remembers, oh, by the way, there's this guy back here. He interprets dreams. And then we see, well, what was predicted back in Genesis 39 comes true. Joseph is second in charge. Now you take a look at that graph. I love that graph of the yo-yo of Joseph's life. The yo-yo of Joseph's life. Genesis 49, 24, but his bow remains steady. That is, Joseph's bow remains steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. You see, Jacob pulls his 12 sons together just before he passes away, and he gives this blessing or as a prophecy towards all of his sons. After that, when Jacob passes away, the 12 sons are now, the 11 sons are now concerned. Joseph is now a powerful man. And those dreams he had way back in childhood actually did come true. And they are now concerned. So they pull Joseph aside and they're, they're trying to guilt Joseph to not seek revenge. And Joseph gives his summary of his life here. Joseph says to them, and this is in Genesis 50, verse 20, You intended to harm me, but God intended for good to accomplish what is being, now being done, the saving of many lives. You know, the time gap between Potiphar, where it says Potiphar on the graph, and to second in charge is somewhere between 15 to 20 years. So when you look at from when he is sold at the bottom of the first time to the end when he finally realizes, Joseph had to wait somewhere between 20, 25 years, depending on how you do the math, for him to finally realize that what was going to take place finally took place. That's a long time to remember, a long time to wait. And then we read Jacob's deathbed oracle. Though Joseph has been bitterly attacked, but his bow remained steady, his arms remained limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. When you look at that image, you look at that blue arrow. If we were to look at that blue arrow as Jacob's, as Joseph's footings, we see that, that that held him through. His bow remained steady. His strong arms remained limber. That's a, quite the statement of him. You see, Joseph was under attack, all kinds of attack, whether it was from his brothers, whether it was from the Ishmaelites, whether it was from Potiphar's house or even Pharaoh's house. And, you know, Joseph could look back at his life and go, you know what that blue line represents? My resiliency, my tenacity, my ingenuity, 
my ability to schmooze with the right people. You see, when I was a slave under Potiphar, I just learned how to just become buddies with Potiphar. That's how I succeeded. And when I'm in jail, I can become buddies with the warden. His connection, or it could just be plain old grit. Joseph did so good because just plain old grit. I did it my way, I'm going to do it in my time, and I will succeed. Or, a humble acknowledgement of and submission to the God of Jacob, the shepherd of the rock, as Jacob says. Jacob looks at his son Joseph at the end when Joseph is they're still in Egypt. And Jacob looks at him and says, you succeeded. Why? Because of the mighty one of Jacob. The mighty one of Jacob, God, Jacob's God. Remember Jacob, the one who wrestled with God? The one who set up that stone and says, this is my God. The shepherd. Jacob understands the shepherding analogy and he says to Joseph, that is the God. And then the rock of Israel. At this point in this passage, we have to remember that Israel refers to Jacob. The nation of Israel doesn't exist yet. And Jacob is saying to Joseph, that is why you succeeded. Joseph's strength did not come from his own doing or his own skill, but strength for the conflict came from the God because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, the mighty one of Jacob. Jacob's, sorry, Joseph's footing was solid. When you look at all the stuff that Joseph faced, for him at the end of his life to look at those brothers who started all this chaos, for him to look at his brothers and say, what you intended for harm, what you intended, God knew what he was doing. And Joseph can give all the credit to his God, the stone, the stone of Israel. Stone. Three names of God, the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. The word stone simply is Eben. Eben, it's a rock. It's a rough, natural, undressed stone. What do I mean by an undressed stone? It is one that hasn't been quarried. It is one that hasn't been cut and shaped and formed. It is simply a natural rock that formed, however it formed, and in, in an example of the image there, that gets shaped through time. The neighborhood that I live in now, we're up on top of Marble Hill. When we first moved in there, the developer, for another two years after we were there, was still developing the property. And because we're on the hill, there's a, there's a variation of rock and, and sediment and soil and water. And as they're excavating the lower subdivision, uh, it's interesting, they uncovered this massive, massive stone. Beautiful, deep purple stone. And I enjoy stone work. I like, you know, finding flat stones as pavers, you know, to walk on. And, and they unearthed this, this massive rock. I have no idea what kind of rock it is. I'm not a geologist. But I remember them bringing in this gigantic excavator with a jackhammer. And for two days, we'd hear this thing going at that rock. Just, and so I remember after about two days, I walked down there, and the best they could do was just chip the rock. They could not do anything to break that rock apart. So I was fully expecting that they were going to bring in dynamite. And of course, you look around, there's already houses going on. I'm going... How on earth are they going to blast this rock? Like, what are you going to do with this rock? 
And in the end, they had to bury it into their landscaping. They had to build the hillside and incorporate that rock. There was no way they could move that rock. Jacob says, the stone of Israel. That's the imagery we should have in our mind when we talk about the even, the rock, the undressed stone is lying there. It is solid. It is secure. You see, when Jacob makes this prophecy. His bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Who is Jacob talking about? Is he talking about Joseph? Joseph, you followed the mighty one of, Is- of, of, of Israel, of, of my God. Joseph, you are the shepherd. You're the one who shepherded your people. Joseph, you are the stone of Israel because you're the one who saved your people. He could have. And there's a lot of commentators think, yeah, that's exactly what Jacob was referring to. Others say, no, no, no. Joseph understood where his footing was. He understood the stone, the rock that he was standing on. And if he didn't, Jacob was reminding him, you are, your success is not because of what you did, but because of the God whom you trust. The stone of Israel. God is a rock for a foundation. He is sure and stable. God is a rock for a fortress, like that big stone that we saw in our neighborhood. He is immovable. God is a rock. He is a refuge for shade and refreshment. You know, Genesis thirty-three twenty-one. when Moses meets God in the mountainside, when the goodness of God passes in front of Moses, what does God say? God says, I will place you, Moses, in the cleft of the rock. For your protection. The cleft of a rock is that imagery of a stone can be that a place of, ref, of, of protection, of nourishment. A couple of scripture passages that remind us of this rock. Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. So the words of Moses at the end of his life. The words of David at the end of his life. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, 2 Samuel. Isaiah, the prophet, says, Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Again, in Samuel, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my Savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. Psalm 62, the Lord is my rock and my salvation. I wait quietly before the Lord for my victory comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. The stone of Israel. Is he your stone? Is your footing or your feet placed firm on that foundation, on that footing? Isaiah takes the imagery one step further. Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, 18, See, I lay a a stone in Zion, a tested stone, 
a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. While still using the word even for stone, the stone is different this time. This is what we call a dress stone or a face stone. This is a stone that is quarried. So someone in a quarry will fashion a rock on purpose for a person, a purpose. And in Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah says, look forward and says, see, I lay in Zion, I lay a stone, an intentional stone, a cornerstone, a dress stone. In that illustration, it is literally that foundation stone. That large rock that we see in the illustration is a cornerstone. A cornerstone is something that is placed there first. We don't do this in our culture anymore. We have laser levels now. So especially when we're watching them do the foundations in my neighborhood, we'd watch the guys set up their laser levels and they know exactly how to orient the building, how to make the corners true and square, and that it's all done with technology. Back in the earlier days, they would use this cornerstone, this even stone, a dress stone, and they'd place it in the corner and the whole building is oriented from that corner, laterally and vertically. So if you want to know where your walls are true and square, so as your bricklayers are laying the last pieces and you're walking your way down the wall, you look back and go, yeah, I'm still in line with what I need to do. It's the foundation stone. And in Isaiah's prophecy, he is saying, I lay down a cornerstone, a foundation stone, orient your life on that stone. See, in the New Testament, Jesus gives us a great parable. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like the man who builds his house on the rock. The footings are right. Don't build on the sand. It's easier to build on the sand. It's easier to move the sand aside because it's movable. And when sand is dry and it kind of turns into clay, it might look and feel secure. But when the storm comes, that is when your cornerstone, your foundation storm, stone is truly tested. But then Psalm 118 takes Isaiah even one step further. And he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or cornerstone, depending on how you understand the translation, and really both apply. The illustration kind of goes like this when I first read this, and for years, I've, my head has been in this, in this mix. So imagine, you know, we're told that when they built the first temple, they didn't want rocks and, and, and picks and shovels where the temple site was, so they quarried the stones, they cut them in a quarry. So imagine you're a worker, you're out in the quarry and you're fashioning away your stones and then you send them to the build site. So the, this rock that the psalmist is talking about shows up and as the person placing goes, eh, I like that rock, I'm like, oh, let's try this rock. This rock doesn't fit. Now let's just put it away. Let's pack another one. And I thought, that, that's what he's alluding to. So it's a, it's a stone the builders rejected. And then in the end, when they got to the end of their build, they go, oh, wait a minute, I, I need that one. I don't think that's the, actually the proper illustration. I believe that the foundation he's talking about, the cornerstone, it's the first stone that is placed. It's the first rock that's put down, and the rest of the building is oriented off of that. And Jesus will corroborate this as it goes into the New Testament. He says to his people, 
you are building on the wrong foundation to start with if you reject or you refuse this stone. If you say, I don't want to build it on this rock, I like this look, and I'm going to build it on this rock, and your whole building is oriented differently. It says you rejected that cornerstone and you built your life on something else. So the way I understand the, the progression, just kind of pause a little bit, Genesis 49, 24 talks about the uncultured, undressed stone, the rock of Israel. God is the rock of Israel. The cornerstone of Isaiah 28, 16 is a fashion stone, an intentional stone set first, and the whole building is oriented off of that. Psalm 118, 22, I think, can refer to the finishing stone, the capstone, when the building is done. See, at that point, because you're looking for a much smaller stone, at that point, the person fashioning the building is looking around going, oh, this one doesn't fit, this one doesn't fit. Oh, this one fits, and it becomes the capstone. Well, in the New Testament... Jesus, three of the Gospels refer to this, where Jesus says, have you not heard? Jesus said to them, have you never read the Scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in your eyes. And this is in Mark and in Luke as well. And again, the reference is the Eben, the rock, the stone. And I believe Jesus is saying, I am both the cornerstone, the foundation, and the capstone. I am the author, and I am the finisher. I'm the one who started. I'm the one who will finish it. I am the completion of it. See, Peter says the same thing in Acts chapter 4. He says, he, that is Christ, the stone you builders rejected, you Israelites, you Pharisees, you scribes, you teachers of the law, the stone that you rejected, he is the one who is the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is the cornerstone and the capstone. Peter builds it out further in his epistle, 1 Peter 2. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Christ Jesus, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Skip ahead. The stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone, and he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. Jesus is the cornerstone and the capstone. Jesus is the one on whom we can build. Let me quote Spurgeon at this point. Spurgeon says this, On Christ we may build. In him we may dwell rest and secure. We may die in Jesus and be gathered to our own people who, having died, live in him. And though so many generations have reared their dwellings on that great rock, there is ample room for us too to build. We have not to contend ourselves with an uncertain foundation among the shifting rubbish of perished dwellings. 
but we can get down to the firm virgin rock for ourselves. None that ever built there have been confounded. We clasp hands with all who have gone before us. At one end of the long chain, this dim figure of the dying Jacob amid his strange vanquished life in Egypt stretches out his withered hands to God, the stone of Israel. And at the other end, we lift ours to Jesus and we cry on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. So what? I think we know this. Part of my struggle as, as I, I, I put this sermon together is you go, it's one of those so obvious. We know this. We know it's about our footing. We know it's about the right foundation. What do we do with it now on a daily basis? I want to just two words. Two words that we actually don't use a whole lot in our English language anymore. One is called Ebenezer. Ebenezer. And this comes out of 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen, and he named it Ebenezer. Ebenezer. There's a song that we sing. Come thou fount of many blessings. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Do you know what an Ebenezer is? Simply is stone of help. That's all it is. You know, when we used to sing that song a lot more in our years ago, we actually, when we put that on PowerPoint, in parentheses, we would write what that meant because most people didn't know what Ebenezer was. I kind of, I did a quick Google search to see how many Ebenezer Baptist churches there are. I think every province has an Ebenezer Baptist church. It's kind of an old name, right? We don't use it a lot. And Ebenezer is a stone, a reminder of what God has done. And in this context in 1 Samuel... Moses sets this up, sorry, Samuel the prophet sets this up because God has just intervened for them. God has just defeated the Philistines, just took care of this insurmountable army on his terms. And the Israelites, when they were done at the end, Samuel says, let me plant my Ebenezer so that you will never forget who brought this success. In the way that Jacob reminds Joseph and reminds us, your success, your footing, is not on your own doing, your own prowess, your own grit, but it is on the stone of Israel. But then there's that second word. I borrowed that word hitherto from the King James Version. I quoted this whole verse as NIV, but I just plunked in the King James hitherto. And again, that's an old word that we don't use. Because he carries on saying, hitherto the Lord has helped us. Does anybody know what hitherto is? What does it mean? Yep, up till now. Thus far. Thus far. See, when Samuel plants that Ebenezer stone, he says, number one, this is how we got here. This is how we got success. But thus far, hitherto, look back at your journey. See where you've come from. See, the reason I threw that graph up of Joseph's life is when I graph it out and when you see that straight line and you go, of all the chaos that Joseph had to endure to get to where he went, at the end of his life, even he could say, hitherto, thus far has the Lord carried me. Can you say the same? Have you planted your Ebenezer do you have your stone of remembrance? 
Can you regularly return to it going, I am building my life, I have built my life on Christ the rock. Secure, steady foundation. And then as you walk down memory lane, and you walk back and you remember times when maybe you felt alone. Seasons of mercy. The whispers of wisdom. The strength of patience. The strong hands of loving kindness. The grace of forgiveness. The miracles of rescue. Hitherto. Can you remind yourself Thus far, I have journeyed. But the thing about this hitherto, not only does it look backwards, it also continues to look forward. Because when Samuel said, hitherto, thus far the Lord has saved me, this journey was not yet over. You still need to journey. Can you look forward to whatever lies ahead of you? All the unknowns whether it's success or joy, whether it's strength or weakness or more fighting or more victories or sickness or old age or disease or even death. Thus far the Lord has carried you. He will continue to carry you moving forward. Again, let me quote Spurgeon. He says, Oh, be of good courage, believer, and with grateful confidence raise thy Ebenezer, for he who has helped thee hitherto will help you all your journey through. When read in heaven's light, how now glorious and marvelous a proposed a prospect will they hitherto unfold thy grateful eye. Spurge is not always an easy guy to read. So, Pay attention to your footwork. On solid, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. Raise your Ebenezer. Know where the rock that you're standing on. And then wherever you are in the journey, hitherto, <laughs> thus far, he will continue to carry us. Let me pray. Father, just in a moment of silence, may we be able to just do a quick stroll down memory lane in our own minds. May we be able to remember, to recall the times when you, we knew you were there and we didn't see you until in retrospect. The times that we know that you were that cornerstone, that rock upon which we set our feet and we oriented the rest of our lives on that foundation. And while our journeys are not yet finished, even so thus far you have carried us. Lord, we don't know what the next coming days and hours are going to bring. We have no idea. But we want to walk in confidence anyway. Because you are the one who sustains us, carries us. Father, my prayer is if there's anyone here who has not built their life on that foundation, has not oriented their life on that cornerstone, 
Father, I pray that your spirit may challenge them to consider the foundation that they did build their lives on, whether it'll hold them when the storms come. May we all know that your grace is readily available to us. You will not reject. You will not turn us away. Father, we pray that your grace would carry us. Amen. I know what you guys are thinking. You're like, let's just get